Hello and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the heart of Motown, and I'm talking about Detroit. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and sitting right across from me, it's been about a year and a half, in a social, eh, not really social distance space, is the very famous Troy Eller English. Because you know why she's famous? She got new equipment. It's very exciting. She was playing with the dials and having so much fun with the new lights. Are you excited? I am excited. Yeah. This is the first time we've used it. We These are nice, some nice microphones, yeah. I think. But this is the first time we've seen each other and doing this on microphone in since March, April of last year. You've got him very beardy. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how you describe it? Is that the technical term for having a beard? Sure. You're very bluey. Yes. Yes. Troy has blue hair. Highlights. You know, the pandemic does that to you. Yes, it does. <laughs> so remember, everybody, get your shots. Vaccinate, socially distance, and I'm talking to you, Daniel Irk. He's my cousin, and he actually listens to the podcast. Oh. And I said I'd give him a, a shout out. All right. But he only listens to the very first part. And, of course, the blooper reels. Because <laughs> the middle part, he has no interest in. Well, all right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, fit in, in the middle, Yeah. some insults at him. Insult? I can't insult Daniel. Oh, okay. We oh, you, oh, oh, he's family you like. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's the one I like. <laughs> anyway, on today's... <laughs> Let's get back to this. On today's episode, we talk with Edward McClelland about his book, Midnight in Vehicle City, General Motors, Flint, and the Strike That Created the Middle Class. Troy? Yes? I was up in Flint recently, a couple months ago with uh, Grace. Congratulations. Yes, I know. Welcome Uh, to my hometown. I know. This is what I'm telling you. We went to the Flint sit-down Memorial Park. Very nice. Have you been? No. You grew up in Flint? I did. And you went in... I think it was built after I left. It was built after you left. But you go to Flint often. You should stop by there. It's a very cool space. Okay. Not only is it a nice, peaceful little garden oasis kind of thing, but there are statues of the men sitting on the car benches. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side is homage to the women that fought outside and has them breaking the glass windows, being hauled off by, by cops and stuff. But also in the middle is this huge, like, globe water water feature mm-hmm. and it honors the women of the UAW you know various rank and file to leadership various things it's very, very cool nice. you gotta go sure please go okay take the kid okay you know it's, it's an experience and then you go do whatever you do in Flint I don't know what you do in Flint visit family there you go okay <laughs> but I digress Okay. Uh, McClelland is an historian and journalist born and raised in Lansing, Michigan, who has been published in the Washington Post, New York Times, and others, and has written many of books, including Young Mr. Obama, The Third Coast, and Nothing But Blue Sky. So I was really glad to talk, get a chance to talk to him about his latest book, um, which is about the Flint sit-down strike. It reads like a Raymond Chandler novel, very noir-type feeling with suspenseful narration, and keeps you on the edge of your seat. This read is a play-by-play of those cold winter months of 1936 and 37 when men and women put their lives at stake for some decent human dignity in the workplace. And in doing so, began the seeds of the middle class of the United States and helped propel the UAW into being one of the most powerful unions in the country. But it's not just about those men and women in Flint, but the action that happened in Lansing and Washington, D.C. 
Ted really paints a lively picture for us to enjoy from the shop floor to the halls of the White House. He also gives us a bit of inspiration that these organizing tactics of the past are, quote, not an obsolete tactic. The blueprint for better working conditions and for a revival of the middle class is in this book. So listen, enjoy, and get a copy of Midnight in Vehicle City. Hi, Ted. How are you doing? So glad that you could join our podcast. Well, glad to be back with the Ruther. I spent a lot of time there when I was researching Midnight in Vehicle City. That's right. So, you know, although it's virtually, but welcome back to the family of the Ruther Library. Absolutely. Now, I, your, your book is great. I loved reading it. It was a fun read. Um, but my first question really is about since Sydney Fine's book, Sit Down, what yeah. has changed in our society to really bring you about to write another book about the great sit down than Flint? Oh, I think so much has changed. I mean, it's such a different uh, moment in the history of, of, of Flint, of the auto industry, of the labor movement, of the, of the middle class. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, at the time that Sidney Fine wrote his book, you know, he wrote it, at, we were just at the absolute peak of economic equality in America in the late, in the late 1960s. And I think it was just assumed that uh, the victories of the, of the labor movement and the victories of the sit-down strikers were uh, a permanent feature uh, of American life. And of course, Flint was this prosperous, booming city. And now, you know, all, all those things have changed. Um, the, you know, the labor movement represents a, a far s- smaller slice of the, of the uh, labor force than it used to. Um, the middle class has shrunk. Uh, Flint, Flint has shrunk. I mean, I, I think one lesson of this is that Flint's uh, condition is sort of a barometer for the condition of the of the of the of the middle class, and you know, then the auto industry isn't as dominant uh, as it used to be. So, um, uh, I, I definitely thought it was time for another look at the sit-down strike. Another thing that changes is that all the sit-down strikers have died. And none mm-hmm. of them are around to tell their stories anymore. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that that was a an, another good reason to write a book. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, your timing is 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 perfect to have this book out, especially at this moment in labor history and current labor events. Absolutely. Well, and 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 last just last night, uh, President Biden said unions built the middle class, and I think uh, this book describes how they did it. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what I mean. It's this perfect timing for what's going on. Um, but what I really enjoyed about reading this too is like it's, it's a change from other history books you uh, people read is because you have this noir type feeling to it. It creates yeah. a great gripping read. Man. <laughs> Did, is this what your intent was all along? Yeah, or? I'm so glad you picked up on that. Absolutely, it was my intent. I mean, uh, you know, noir was a popular uh, style of that era. Um, you know, people were reading these pulp pulp detective novels and pulp detective magazines. And I actually read some Raymond Chandler and Cornell Woolrich before I started <laughs> yeah. writing the book. So I could sort of get, get into the feel of it. Just, you know, the, the whole thing about, uh, you know, Wyndham Mortimer going to Flint and just, you know, checking into this cheap hotel mm-hmm. and, and being followed 
by Pinkerton detectives and, and, you know, having secret, you know, secret meetings in, in, in people's houses or in darkened churches. To, to me, it, it did feel like a noir, a noir story. And so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to give it that feeling. Yeah, it really, and, and you sometimes use the vernacular from back then. I, uh, I tried to, yeah. Yeah, you, you <laughs> even mentioned uh, that John Lewis got the gripe instead of calling it the flu. Oh, right. <laughs> I, I, was great. I, I think that was probably how it had been mentioned in the newspaper stories. Probably. So probably. I, I, I just, uh, I just stuck with it. <laughs> no, that it, it made for a great time uh, reading your book. And so, but so when we set up the whole stage for some people who are not familiar with the sit down strike or just to remind themselves, like who were involved, what were the players and, and how did the city of Flint fit into this, this picture? Um, well, the, you know, the UAW had just sort of, you know, broken away from the American Federation of Labor and joined with the new uh, Congress of Industrial Organizations. It was led by John L. Lewis and they had new leadership. They had more, more militant leadership and they decided they wanted to strike General Motors. There'd been some unsuccessful strikes at General Motors and Flint in the years before, but, you know, the Wagner Act had just been passed, you know, guaranteeing workers the rights to bargain collectively and, they were hoping that Michigan was going to elect a New Deal governor uh, in Frank Murphy, which Michigan did. And they decided to focus on Flint and in particular on Fisher Body Number 1 because that contained dyes that were used to, to stamp out bodies uh, for cars that were built throughout the GM universe around the country. So if they could, they could shut down Flint, if they could shut down Fisher 1, they could, they could shut down the, the whole company. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, Murphy, Murphy was elect, Murphy's elected in November. And so they say, well, let's just have something after he's inaugurated after the, after the new year. But, you know, events kind of overtook them because there were rumors that the company was going to ship dyes to Grand Rapids uh, on December 30th. So they had to act, they had to act then. And that's when they, that's when they took over the plant. Uh, So he's, you know, he's a major player. The Ruther brought two of the Ruther brothers, Victor and Rory Ruther, they were organizers uh, in, in Flint. And then later on, other major players included Francis Perkins, mm-hmm. uh, who was the first secretary, first female cabinet secretary. She was the secretary of labor and, and she, she did a lot to, um, try to bring the company and the union to the, to the bargaining table. And, and she, as I recount in the book, she had some very, uh, contentious discussions and arguments with Alfred P. Sloan, right. who was the, then the chairman of, of General Motors. And he was sort of this, starchy remote figure from the 1920s who who worked in New York and was not really in touch with what was going on in the uh on the shop floor in Michigan. Right. And um it was interesting how you you brought all these characters together and you you started talking about how they'd had to take one. And that was all right. There was some really good chapters here about that was gripping. And so kind of like on a timeline here. Why don't you to give us a description? You said it happened fast, and when it happened, it was quick and kind of scary. Could you describe uh, the these workers who are at, at will workers took over Fisher One? Right. Yeah. They just they just said, you know, they sent the they sent the um, they sent the the management home, uh, and then you know there were women working in the plant, but they sent them home them home because they didn't want there to be any rumors about what may, might be going on between men and women in the plant that was going that would have undermined uh, support from home. Right. And uh, you know they barricaded themselves in there. Um, 
they welded doors shut. They, they, you know, they, they formed committees, they formed defense committees. Uh, and they, you know, they were constantly afraid that the, you know, the, the, the company or the, the police were going to try to violently oust them uh, from the plant. I mean, the company went to court and, and got an injunction and that, that came about on January 11th. There was the, the battle of the running bulls when the Flint police uh, attacked uh, Fisher body number two. They first they cut off the heat and they cut off the food, uh, and then they they attacked the plant with tear gas. But the strikers uh, managed to repel the attack. Uh, you know they were aiming fire hoses at the police. They were throwing door hinges at them through the windows. And uh, as the police retreated, they they turned around and opened fire, and they wounded uh, fourteen strikers. Um, so, you know, these, these guys were, were risking their lives. They were putting their lives on the line, uh, for the success of this strike. Yeah, they were. And, and we got to remember, this is also January where it was right. probably like 10, 15, 20 yeah, degrees. Yeah. It was, uh, the, t- the high temperature on the day of the battle of the running bulls was 16 degrees and, and there was no heat in the plant. So oh, it was, a, it, it was a pretty desperate situation. And this is this the first time? I mean, I'm kind of stepping here, but you shed a wonderful light on those who were the backbone of this strike, and that were the that was the women right. of the UAW strikers and supporters. Um, is this where they first came about and just said, "Hey, God, hey, we have to protect our guys who are in here"? Right. Yeah, that was you know there was a woman named Janura Johnson, and some people think there should be a a statue of her in Flint, like there are statues of you know David Buick and. Billy Durant. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, she was someone who had been involved in socialist causes. She'd been very politically active and her husband uh, was a striker. And she went down to the Pengelly building, which was a strike headquarters and wanted to volunteer. And they said, well, we can put you in the kitchen. She said, <laughs> I, I don't want to be in the kitchen. I want to be out on the front line. So she organized a, a picket line and her two-year-old son was holding a a picket sign that said, my daddy strikes for us little tykes. Yeah. Uh, yep. And uh, during the battle of the running bulls, she was there. And after the police shot at the strikers, women ran down to the plant and, you know, put their bodies in between the, the two sides. And so she, the next day she, she, she formed what they, she called the women's emergency brigade, which was sort of a paramilitary outfit that was going to uh, support the strikers when there was trouble. And, they they wore red berets and they wore red armbands and uh, uh, they carried billy clubs underneath their coats hmm. and they actually went into action um, after there were there was a stalemate in the strike and so the union decided to take over another plant uh, Chevy Chevy Four an engine plant that made yeah engines. that was what that was an amazing chapter too that got me yeah. on the edge of my seat as well and and, and there there was a diversionary t- tactic. At another Chevy plant, and the, they they drew the plant police there, and the plant police were firing tear gas at the workers. So the women showed up with their billy clubs, and they broke the windows to let the gas seep out. And uh, the the uh, uh, newspapers the next day were saying, you know, crazed women smashed windows for no apparent reason. So uh, they were they were so they were on the front lines uh, uh, in that way. You're absolutely you were. And and you're right to point out that the next day the, the media was saying crazed women. And for the longest time, the narrative, whenever you saw those images 
those moving images of the women smashing the windows, you would think they're creating violence. They're destroying the factory and doing stuff. It took a long time for us to realize that they were trying to get the tear gas out. You know? Right. Yeah. And um, that has a lot to do with the story of Flint. There was a lot of that the media was portraying as not true of actually what's going on. Um, and behind the scenes, of course, you had Governor Frank Murphy the whole yeah. time trying to do something. Here's <laughs> he's a he's he's brand new in the job, and here he has to face something right. like this. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, even before even before he was he was inaugurated, uh, the, yeah. the, the strike starts. So it pretty much consumed the the beginning of his governorship, um, and it probably had something to do uh, with him being defeated for reelection after two years after one term. Because he, he he didn't bow down to GM or to what the general public was saying. He right. I mean, he could go- he could have legally, you know, when he after the Battle of the Running Bulls, he sent the National Guard to Flint, uh, and um, it was the first time the National Guard had been called out in a labor strike since a mining strike in the Upper Peninsula. I think it was in like 1913, and he could have legally. Um, uh, used the National Guard to expel the strikers from the plant, uh, and because you know, the, he, there was that court injunction, but he just said, "I want you to just set up, set up in between the plant and the uh, um, and the, the police, and make sure there's no more violence." And so there, I've got great pictures in the book of you know the striker. They're all they're all dressed in World War One uniforms. You know, and they've got machine guns and they're marching through the streets with, with bayonets. So, you know, Flint was a kind of, uh, for the time that this was going on. Yeah. And, and again, back to what perception we have of the photos. Um, when I was growing up, you saw the picture and there's no real description. It said National Guard there for UAW strike. And you assumed immediately right. that they were there to fight against the strikers. They weren't there to hold the right. peace line going on. Right. Yeah. So and, again, and, in a couple, yeah, a couple of times, uh, he threatened to, when when he was trying to get John L. Lewis to make a concession, he would Murphy threatened to um, uh, send the National Guard in, but Lewis always called his bluff. So, <laughs> yes, Lewis knew his bluffs, especially right. with that letter that Murphy had. Right, and the, I think he was just he wrote that, and I think it was, he 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 just wrote it to sort of protect himself politically. Be, because he didn't reveal it until uh, his confirmation hearing for attorney general, you know, chief law enforcement officer of the United States. He wanted to show he wasn't just going to let the union get away with trespassing forever. So this goes to show, hold on to your letter sometimes, because that got him far. Save your mail. (laughs) And um, you mentioned earlier Frances Perkins. I find her one of the unsung heroes of the progressive movement. I mean, she did a lot almost, and you gave a great biography of her, a great synopsis of her life. Um, what, you know, and, and the descriptions you gave about her battling Sloan verbally, right. um, what kind of, here's, here's the first woman as secretary of labor. Um, what kind of woman was she? And why don't you just describe to our listeners how much action she actually took on getting this strike resolved? Well, I guess you could say she was sort of a do-gooder from New England. She had worked in, uh, I think she worked with Jane Adams. She worked in settlement houses in, in Chicago, and she worked with she she worked for, for fair labor laws after the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in New York. 
Uh, you know, she, she'd worked on a lot of um, industrial and labor commissions under Franklin D. Roosevelt when he was governor of New York. And so he took her along uh, to Washington. And, uh, you know, I think she was, she was important because Roosevelt didn't like to be uh, personally involved with labor strikes. He had a secretary of labor for that. So, so he really put her uh, on, the, on the front lines of, of, of this. And she, she had given an oral history to uh, Columbia University. And that's where I, I, you know, got those conversations with, with Sloan. You know, she thought she had a, uh, Sloan was refusing to negotiate with the strikers as long as they occupied his plants. And she thought she had an agreement with him to, to actually do so. And when he backed out on it, she just, you know, unloaded on him. She said, you, you're, you're a rotter. You're going to go to hell. You're like the rich man who can't get through the eye of the needle. And Sloan was just retorting, you know, you can't talk to me like that. I'm Alfred P. Sloan. I'm, I'm, I have $70 million and I made it all myself. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's one of the, that's one of the most, uh, entertaining scenes uh, in the book and that's the, the the only research i did outside the state of michigan was when i went to columbia university and uh looked at the francis perkins papers there oh okay well you you uh sum up their argument let's say very nicely yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hopefully um, you know it's all it's all her it's all her memory. So I just, I presented it as, 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 as it actually happened. I tried to include a lot of dialogue in the, in the book. Um, Which helped a lot. It gave yeah. a sense of realism, right? And especially with your anecdotes of those who were in the strike from, from the, the basic guys who were going in, you found their oral histories, incorporated their stories in to even like at the very end where you're talking about the, the middle class um, all, all, all around and shaping the, the salaries of the workers in Flint and uh, your stories of, um, especially comes to mind Everett uh, at the very end, yeah. his legacy. Yeah. That is the legacy what you're trying to get to in the book too. It's like, here's the right. middle class, the UAW created it. Why don't you tell us more about this, this, this ethos of what the UAW built, which is, we could say, the middle class of America. Right. Well, you know, as far as the, the voices of the strikers, um, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, there, there was uh, the U of M Flint uh, uh, labor history uh, project interviewed a lot of a lot of strikers. Um, and that, that was just an invaluable resource because I was able to draw on all those all those oral histories. But yeah, Everett, Everett Ketchum, he was one of the last surviving sit-down strikers. He died in 2013. He was 98 years old. And uh, to me, he was a close family friend of ours. You know, he was always over for Sunday dinner, and he married my stepmother's mother after she was widowed. Uh, and he, he just exemplified the, the, the victories, the, you know, the, the good life in Michigan that the sit-down strike had won. He started as uh, an apprentice earning 25 cents an hour. Uh, and when the strike started and he joined and he, when he retired, he was a, in the seventies, he was a tool and die maker earning $27 an hour. Uh, and, you know, he mm -hmm. owned, he, 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 he married a woman from uh, East Lansing. Um, and so he transferred to Oldsmobile and, uh, you know, he owned houses. They, he owned houses. Um, 
off-campus houses. He rented to students and he sort of became this minor local celebrity. Uh, they call him the tooth fairy or the dental man because he liked to flirt with waitresses. Uh, he noticed that a waitress at his favorite pancake house didn't smile. And he asked her why. And she just said, well, look at my teeth. And he said, well, how much is it going to cost to fix those? She said $14,000. So he wrote her a check for $14,000. Wow. He did the same for another another waitress. So, you know, he didn't have any kids. So he spent it on, he spent it on waitresses. And, and, and it was the salary that he was, that he was bringing in, his hourly that he brought yeah. in. You yeah. Know? You know, we, we thought he had, you know, maybe half a million dollars saved up from. Wow. Just from working wow. in the shop and being wow. a landlord. Yeah. That's amazing. So what, what was, what other surprises did you take when you're researching this book? Um, I, I guess just, you may, you know, how bad and how dangerous the, the working conditions were, you know, it was never, the strike was, wasn't about money. Um, you know, there was no job security there. You know, you had really had to, you know, you had to bring food to your boss or you had to paint your boss's house, uh, your foreman, or, you know, he'd hire someone else. And a lot, a lot of, there weren't a lot of workers over 40 because they just couldn't keep up with the, you know, the speed up. They, they mm-hmm. talked about the speed up when they'd start at 40 cars an hour and they were trying to make quota. They, they crank it up to 60 cars an hour and the workers mm-hmm. couldn't keep up and the line broke down because it wasn't engineered to, to run that fast. Um, you know, it was, it was dangerous. You know, I talked about a worker who put his eye out and took him years to get any money from the state as compensation because there was no workman's compensation. There was no health insurance. So, uh, you know, they wanted, they wanted job security. They wanted dignity. They wanted things that workers take for grant, granted today. And they, they won those things as a result of the sit-down strike. And, you know, after that, there were time studies as to how fast the line should run. And layoffs right. were based on seniority. Right. All right. It was, it's, um, while you're talking about this, this, this factory work, which is hazardous, it raises the issue that during this pandemic, again, that veil was kind of pushed away. We saw what was going on in the right. packing houses. We saw what was going on in Amazon. Um, right. And that we knew that there were ambulances waiting outside in the summer times, but you know, they couldn't take, you know, bathroom breaks, uh, the packing house, they were getting COVID. And so what have we learned from this, man? <laughs> you know, so UAW. Yeah. Well, you know, it was just interesting to me how similar the concerns of the uh, of the workers, you know, who wanted to form a unit at Amazon, were to the sit-down strikers. Uh, you know, they wanted more job security, they wanted more humane pace of work, they wanted more say in the workplace, and that that uh, failed. And it's you know, there's just been an interesting dynamic, and that a guy and a guy named Harold Myerson wrote something about it. Is that you know the labor movement has just become more of a white collar movement lately and his theory and i think it's true is that you know the less replaceable workers are the more confident they feel in being able to form a union so you know people who really don't have a lot of job skills and and have these tough jobs they're worried that if they form a union the company will just you know move somewhere else or you know pull the rug out from under them and i think that explains why the the uh, effort at amazon uh, failed and you know why, why they're failing to get into uh, some of these really low wage industries, but, you know, when, whenever it's, uh, you know, journalists, teaching assistants, they always, um, they always vote for unions. 
Yeah, and and um, when you mentioned the fact about um, respect in the workplace, even right now we're still having issues with teachers getting respect in in Gross Point right now. Um, it was okay. interesting. Teacher uh, quit right in front of the school board and said, "You're not respecting us." And huh. there's walkouts going on right now, actually. Um, but it's true about you know the the factory workers and those 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 skilled workers. They're afraid. They're absolutely afraid because someone's right behind them still in this day and age waiting to take their job. Right. And it, it's 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 definitely a deferment. But somehow, some way, there will be a shift. I think hopefully. Um, but I mean, I think know. you know Biden has been. So they're saying he's the most pro-union president we've ever had, maybe even more than than Franklin D. Roosevelt. You know, he made a big speech saying you know, unions built the middle class and every worker has the right to, to join a union. And he mentioned Alabama, although not Amazon, uh, by name. And I think one lesson from this book is that when government takes the side of, of unions and working people, then then they succeed. Uh, you know, if they hadn't had the support of of uh, Frank Murphy and Francis Perkins and even Franklin D. Roosevelt. Roosevelt had to make a phone call to a GM executive to get them to agree to sit down and negotiate with the union in Detroit because, you know, General Motors, biggest company in the world, they weren't going to listen to anybody but the president. So right. uh, Perkins right. told Roosevelt he had to do it. He did it. <laughs> when I was reading that, I, I don't think uh, many, um, I don't think Elon Musk would take a phone call from Biden. That's the problem. You, today. you don't think so? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> What about um, Jeff Bezos? He might. He just might. Yeah. He he might. Um, he'll get pressure from his his friends from um, Costco to say you better pick up the phone. You know. Okay. So, <laughs> but um, that is the takeaway I think from your book. Um, that and you just answered it in a way. It's like it's for those who are in in, in those factories today, who are also union members, who are also just the general public. You got to remember these are the things that were fought for and won. To give us a better, better, um, better American lifestyle, I guess. Yeah. Um, always at the end of our podcast, we always love to hear where you did your research, specifically the Ruther Library, but also the you Library. mentioned there's a lot of other places around the, the state that you use oh, to yeah. create this book. Yeah. So we'd love well, to hear. The, all I, I mean, the the Ruther Library and then the U of M Flint Library, especially the C uh, historical collections. Those were probably the two. Two biggest places. Uh, the, it was the Flint Public Library. Uh, there's a library of Michigan in my hometown of, of Lansing. Um, and then there was the Columbia University Library in New York City. And, and I would say those are the main places. Yeah. Detroit, Detroit and, and uh, Flint. Uh, you know, I, I stayed with a couple in Flint when I would be doing research there. And then I'd drive down to Detroit every once in a while to go to the to the Ruther Library. Um, Ted, I really appreciate you being on our podcast. Um, you, Thanks for you, having me. You really did explain everything to us. And we, um, okay. I love it. Thanks a lot. And everybody got to buy this book. This is a lovely book. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. 
The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Are you recording? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> am I? I don't know. Do you, I think I you... am. I think that light means that it's recording. I have no idea what that light does. Troy? What did you call him? Edward McClelland. 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 That's what I said. No. What did I say? McClelland. McClelland? Hey, McClelland. He's Highlands. He's a Highlander now. On today's episode, we talk with Edward McClelland. How's that? No? Ah. Uh, McClelland. And that part was fine, but you said today like you were in the outback. On today's episode, was that Aussie? Is that no, too Aussie or New Zealand for you? I think it was all right. You know, it was so much better when I didn't see you. I know. <laughs> We're going back to that. Back then, it was more relaxed. I could be in my basement uh-huh. with my beer. And your fade up. What? Feet up. Fade up. I thought you said fade up. No. I'm not doing a fade. I might have said it. I don't know. Oh, oh, so you can't say pronounce things either, huh? Okay. <laughs> Fine. All right. And I'm talking to you, Daniel. Irk. <laughs> <laughs> was that better? That was we better. had a little rough beginning there. Well, you know, was, uh, everything about returning to work has been uh, a little rough.